0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, This is the word of God to the people of God today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, um, Lord, come before you now and ask that you would come and speak powerfully, uh, transformatively, uh, restoratively to us as we hear your word preached. pray, God, that you would take the words of my mouth And the meditations of my heart cause them to be honorable, honoring, and Christ-exalting. For God, that you would uh, help me to be helpful uh, to your people. I pray that, trusting that you will do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. Everybody watching, say aloud amen. Good. I can't hear you, but I'll pretend like I could. love this text as I was reading it as I was studying it this week I um, I got to thinking uh, probably something that um, most all of you have been thinking lately too um, I was thinking that the, the never in my life have I experienced the polarization the division the anger and the, the mischaracterizations and the the slander the, the spirit of all-out war like I have uh, here in 2020 it's it's the topic that all of us are talking about really seems true that what we are experiencing and what we are witnessing in our country and and in fact really probably all across the world in 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 many regards at, at this time in in our lives what we're experiencing appears to be the, the outcome of uh, the war of the mind and the heart. The battlefield of the mind and the heart. The war of the minds and the hearts of humans who are really really just trying to navigate life amidst the brokenness of humanity and, and the, the frailty of humanity. It's been uh, quite a year so far for all of us here in the American church. And again, probably across the world too. And yet, every time I come to the Bible, every time I come to God's Word, daily, and and especially in preparation for Sundays, I feel this really unique provision from the Lord. And I I really feel it again this morning in in, in this text that that I just read. We, We need a fresh drink of water from God's Word, don't we? Fresh drink of water from God's word. Think about what we just read. Think about that. And and, and listen to this summary quickly. Um, I think Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, is really about three things that you might take note on. It's really about the command, the model, and the promise. It's about the command, the model, and the promise see when 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 I um, refuse to to think on unbiblical things the reason that I refuse to do so is because I am freely choosing by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me to think on biblical things think about discipleship too Biblical discipleship. And it really revolves around learning and receiving and hearing and practicing the model and the example of Christ. When I think about the promise in, in, in this passage, I I think about this truth: that the the the, the 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 promise of the gospel is that the model is trustworthy and, and that the command is doable. By, by the power of the Spirit of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. What is true? What is honorable? What is just? What is pure? What, what is lovely? What is commendable? What, what, what is excellent? What, what is praiseworthy or worthy of praise? What is? What, what, what is? These are the kinds of questions of the heart and the mind which will inevitably translate into the decisions and the behavior of our lives. Answers to those questions will result in the decisions of my heart and mind which translate into the behavior of my life. Now, now consequently... I just ask those questions in a positive way. What is true? What is just? What is pure? Right. Uh, uh, we also ask them in a negative way, which is important. In fact, by asking things in a positive way, you automatically ask them in a negative way. You ask them this way. You ask, what is not true? Right? Uh, what, what, what is not honorable? What, what is unjust? What is impure? pure what is what is unlovely? What is not commendable? what would I not commend? What is not excellent what was not worthy of praise? See here's the thing our no to one thing on the one hand is consequently a yes to another thing. our our warm reception of something is, Effectively going to be a cold rejection of another thing. The reality is that thinking as we ought to demands the discipline of refusal. Thinking as we ought to. Receiving something. Demands the discipline of refusal. Saying no to something. The warm reception of a thought or a desire, or, or, or a behavior, or, or an act is going to inevitably lead to a cold rejection of a contrary thought, or a contrary desire, or a contrary behavior, contrary action. This, this, this is the basic description of a disciplined Mindful and heartfelt reflection, and then the consequential outcome that every person lives with. This is to say that human existence really is like a complex uh, kind of a trichotomy of the of the heart and the mind and the soul that then gets displayed in our day-to-day physical lives as we practice the ethics of our lives. Morals is what we believe and hold to. Ethics is what we live out. So how do you know what is true? How do you know what is honorable? How do you know what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy? On the other hand, how do you know what is untrue? How do you know what is dishonorable? What is unjust? How do you know what is impure? How do you know what is unlovely? How do you know what is not commendable? How do you know what is not worthy of praise? How do you know what is not excellent? Most believers, I think, would agree that Christians are called to answer these questions according to God's Word, according to the Bible. The question is this what, what are you to do? What are you to do when you are confronted with other Christians, other human beings, asking the same questions but are landing in a completely different place, a place of contradiction to your own convictions? And sadly, uh, sometimes in the church we become uh, even more entrenched in our bubble like division. You know, like everybody that's in my bubble and thinks this way, we're a pack, kind of click, you know. It's tempting, I think, for all of us to kind of just become more entrenched in that. Sometimes uh, we give in to mischaracterizations of our opponents because we nitpick things that they have said and we lock onto that and we miss other things. Sometimes we just work hard to kind of like fortify or build up kind of our ideology, our framework for how we see life, which sometimes we do that to the detriment of our theology, if that makes sense. like, I think if we were to focus on fortifying our theology, our ideology would be subject to change maybe. But sometimes I think we wind up fortifying our ideology, uh, maybe not as often our theology. Uh, we, we retreat or, or we advance depending on our levels of passion, uh, for the convictions that we have. We feel convicted and convinced of whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just or pure, or lovely or commendable or excellent or worthy of praise. We retreat and advance based on those levels of conviction And in effect, what we do is we do just what Paul is saying to do here in verse A. We think on these things. And we think on these things in the recesses of our hearts and, and our minds. And then what we do is we seek to live our lives in accordance with those things that we believe to be both good and true. What I'm describing here, I hope to describe, it's what I would call the battlefield of the mind. And in this battlefield of the mind, I don't think anybody wants to be double-minded. I don't think any of us wants to ever be double-minded in this kind of a war because even as James, the brother of Jesus, and he rightly states that Christians are called to draw near to God and He will draw near to you Cleanse your hands, you sinners, he says. Love, James. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I always thought, like, if James was my pastor, I think I would probably be offended often because he is so straight, so black and white. Like, James, when you read the book of James, I remember preaching the book of James, and James, James just says it how it is. Like, deal with it. It's kind of, that's James. That's the sense Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says. And the battlefield of the mind is, is ripe with potholes of, of sinful impurity that divides the convictions of our hearts and, and our minds. And, and here's the thing. When you think about that kind of a division that can happen inside of our hearts and minds, it reminds me that no war is ever going to get won very well when the house of my heart and your heart, my mind, your mind, no war is going to get won when the house of our hearts and minds are divided against themselves. Apostle Paul appears uh, to agree with that thought throughout his letter to the Philippian church. He knows that the threat of double-mindedness, a house divided against itself, it exists not just out there, some other church family, not not just out there in the dirty old world, but it actually exists right there within the church at Philippi. And and it was especially evidenced in the previous verses that we studied last week in verses 2-7 through of chapter 4, especially evidenced in the physical lives of the church family, um, where the Apostle Paul gently but but resolutely and and very firmly confronted the disagreement and the division between Euodia and Syntyche. A mind, a family, a marriage, a team, a friendship, a church, a country, will not stand when it's divided against itself. We know this to be true. Abraham Lincoln quoted that as well, if I remember right. Let's not forget, let's not forget that the the Apostle Paul, and he slowly built his case all throughout this letter, right? All throughout this letter to the Philippian church, slowly built his case, beginning with his purpose, his, his call for Christians to live their lives as citizens of heaven, not citizens of Rome or Philippi, citizens of heaven, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27. Out of that purpose flows... Three clusters of major issues, right? Self-centeredness and pride in verses three through four of chapter two, complaining and arguing, verses fourteen through fifteen of chapter two, disagreement and division, verses two and three of chapter four. They got those three main issues that flow out of the purpose. And then as he confronts those three main issues, uh, he also gives three really awesome uh, remedies, right? Now, Christians are to put on the mind of Christ to combat the temptation of self-centeredness and pride. They put on the mind of Christ, verses 5-8 through eight of chapter 2. Uh, Christians are to work out their own salvation in Christ as they resist the temptation towards complaining and arguing. Is there not enough temptation to complain and argue today, right now? We resist that by working out our own salvation in Christ. And finally, he says, hey, Christians, um, you, can, you can resist and, 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 and reject the division and disagreement in you if you were to stand firm in the joy and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to verse 1 through seven of chapter four. So you know, throughout all this, uh, we learn this this unmistakable truth that that a, that a winsome uh, ethical testimony is a it's a powerful evangelistic force in an unbelieving world. a winsome ethical testimony that. that that is a powerful evangelistic force in an unbelieving world. And yet, yet we are left with the dilemma of trying to rightly and wisely discern how to live out what we believe is actually true and honorable, just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. Sometimes, oftentimes maybe in ways that are counter or contrary to other well-meaning professing Christians. As we reject what they believe without rejecting them as human beings who have been created in, in the image of God, who possess the spirit of the same living God that we do. Remember, that's the immediate context of what Paul is saying here. It's the immediate context of Paul's words in verses eight through nine, right? Conflict, disagreement, division. It's seeped in through the, the virtual walls of the Philippian church. How are we supposed to synthesize all of what Paul is saying here? How do we live our lives as citizens of a heaven in a manner that is worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we resist self-centeredness and pride? How do we resist complaining and arguing and disagreeing and division? How do we do that? How do, we, how do we put on the mind of Christ? And how do we work out our own salvation in Christ? And how do, we, how do we stand firm in the joy and the peace of Christ? Well, I think Paul's simple answer to those complex questions, because we humans are complex, is simple answer. We saw some of it last week. Is just simply fortify yourself in the Gospel. Fortify yourself in the Gospel. And the way that you fortify yourself in the gospel, if you catch the image of a fort with four walls and a roof, fortify yourself in the gospel. Those four walls of the gospel would be peace twice over, peace on the right, peace on the left, joy in the back, reasonableness in front, prayer over the top. That was the image that I tried to preach through last week. Fortify ourselves in the gospel. Peace on the right, peace on the left, joy in the back, reasonableness in the front, prayer on top. And when, when we do that, as we do that, the way that we do that, is by taking our place at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb in light of the hope of heaven. Those are intentional words. I use them every week. Foot of a bloody cross. Kneeled down. Doorway of an empty tomb. Looking through and seeing the victory we have. Light of the hope of heaven. Meaning it's shining down. It's enlightening our souls. It's reminding us that we have heaven. This earth is not our kingdom. Just in case Paul hasn't been clear enough to this point what he does now in the verses in front of us today he explains that christians must commit themselves to thinking on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent worthy of praise right that's the command but paul doesn't just leave us with that command in verse 8 But how we are to think, he also gives us a a model or an example of what that actually looks like. And then on top of that, he gives us a promise that we can bank on if we listen to and act accordingly to the things that he's said. You see, here's the thing. Uh, Information and examples are absolutely useless if they do not lead to change transformation you see transformation is only as good as the promise that it flows from i want to say this all again information and examples are useless absolutely useless that they do not lead to change or transformation and here's the thing transformation is only as good as the promises that it flows from think about it this way of What was once true, what was once honorable, what was once just, what was once pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, what was once all those things to the unregenerate, unbelieving heart and mind is necessarily going to be transformed at the moment of salvation. But it's not like it's yet perfected because. We're not in heaven yet. And and until we arrive in heaven, we're going to be in continual need of sanctification, which is this big theological word for growth, change, transformation. It happens as we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. And listen, you, you don't get the outcome of conformity, which is transformation. When you're being conformed, transformation comes out of that. You don't get conformed, you don't get transformation into the image of Christ unless you spend time at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb pulling on to the hope of heaven. There are many things that we can give our minds and our hearts to these days. Many seemingly good things. No, they're not centered on the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. They're absolutely useless in my mind. We want to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ, who is the absolute pristine essence point of the Apostle Paul's command, model, and promise here. Christ crucified, risen, and returning is at the is at the center of Paul's command, model, and promise. It's at the, it's at the, it's at the center of all of Paul's theology. It's no no secret. It's At the center of all of the Bible, and yet yet we we make all these other little topics the point of the Bible, that, and, it, and it's a gross misrepresentation of the Bible itself oftentimes when we do that. for I believe that if we, are, if we are to receive this command, if we're to receive this model, if we're to receive the promise of this passage in any kind of a transformative way, um, I believe we're going to have to receive it uh, through the heart and mind that is centered, filtered, by the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. So I I just want to pause and pray one more time before I move through the rest of this sermon. Because I I would feel like if I was in your shoes hearing everything that I'm saying, that's a lot already. I feel like overload. And, And we're talking about something that's really important, right? Like all around, it's really about truth. And really, Jesus is the embodiment of truth. So... I just want to pray one more time. Bow with me, please. Father, uh, Lord, um, or ask that in the rest of our time together in scriptures here, Lord, that you would come by the power of your spirit and remove deception, lies from the enemy. Fear that you would bust through strongholds that have been deeply rooted for a lot longer than I've been alive in some people, I think. Um, Lord, I pray that you would come and Do a work of setting people free by the power of the gospel. Lord, let us not misuse that word freedom and strip it of its gospel power. Father, please come now by your spirit and do that work. I trust you to do what what none of my words could ever do, but only your word could do. Take the divided hearts and minds that might hear this message please Father, um, unite them and mend them back together by the power of the gospel. I pray. In Jesus name. Amen? Look at the command of this text. Look at the command in verse eight. like the command of this text is to think on these things, right? Uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Once again, natural conclusion of this line of thinking is that when we think on these things, we reject thinking on those things that are contrary in nature. So, so when I reject something as unbiblical, just the way, just the way I work, When I reject something as unbiblical, when I say, nope, not biblical, not listening to it, when I reject that, it's because I am refusing to think on unbiblical things. And I am choosing freely to think on biblical things instead. Like, let's take each one of these in here, and let's just think about them for a minute. I can't do a real in-depth study on them because we don't have time. But you could do a six-to-eight-week series on the key words of this, verse 8. I'm just going to give you a brief flyby and then encourage you to go look some more. To think on truth is to meditate on Christ. It's to meditate on the Word of God. It's to meditate on the Gospel. That's what it means to, to think on truth. To think on what is honorable is to chew on whatever is morally excellent, morally dignified, morally noble. To think on what is just, is to think about righteous and right things. To think on what is pure, is to actually ponder whatever is not tainted with evil, especially the kind of evil that sexual impurity brings. To think on what is lovely, is to have your mind completely captivated by moral and aesthetic beauty. To To think on whatever is commendable, is to be preoccupied with High moral conduct. We are to let our minds continually dwell on, ponder on, think on things that are morally excellent and praiseworthy without ceasing. That's the sense of all of this. It's a command, it's a very non negotiable, black and white kind of a command. There's no relativism here whatsoever. No getting around what Paul's saying. But obviously, obviously there's going to be some nuance, right? Obviously there's going to be some nuance depending on the circumstances of your life. Okay, there's nuance in application. Um, there's no relativism in truth. All truth is truth. <coughs> but there may be some truth that is not necessarily applicable, maybe not necessarily helpful to my life right now or to your life right now. <clears throat> what might be helpful to you may not be helpful to me right now, right? So, in that way, while that feels like relativism, that's not necessarily relativism, that's nuance, I think. think. There are true principles about how to treat your spouse that would be really good for me because I'm married, but I need to pay attention to. There might be good building blocks for a single person, for a future potential spouse, and they aren't any less true. Between the single person and the married person, but they're going to get less thinking time for the single person because they're not as helpful right now. So I could work through lots of different scenarios here, but I, and I could work through like each each word, e- each of those six to eight words, um, and just kind of show how um, application is one thing, truth of a principle is another. Um, The point is that while truth is not relative at all, uh, it is very practical in application, and therefore at times it really doesn't apply to someone. At the same time, on the other side of the coin, there, there are choices, choices that each of us make on a daily basis when it comes to our thinking, okay? kind of hit on this quite a bit already, but just want to one final time hit on it. When I choose not to fill my mind with some kind of social media, Some kind of blog post, some kind of video or movie or music or art or ideology. I was thinking this week about back when I was in youth ministry, there were kids that we would reach that really loved horror movies, never been a fan. Sometimes I think they're just probably not the best thing to be watching, just me, right? Um, And they'd want me to watch those with them. I'd be like, hey, man, like for me, that's unbiblical. I'm not watching it. Sorry. And they'd like get all butthurt about it. And it's like, hey, I'm not attacking your identity in that. You can watch that if you want to. But for me, though, thats, that's I'm not going there. Um, I love you. I just don't love what you're consuming. That's it. I was thinking about that this week. When I choose not to fill my mind with something, what I'm doing is I'm actively engaging the battlefield of my own mind in a way that seems true and and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy to me. According to... What I know of God's word. Bottom line is this command here centers on looking to Christ and his word and the gospel as the filter for my thinking. You think about the model. Look at the model now with me in verse 9. Like the model that the Apostle Paul presents to us in the text comes across at first like it's just basically himself, which it is primarily at first, black and white. He presents himself. He says, hey, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And here's the thing. Discipleship, when you think about discipleship, discipleship is all about learning and receiving and hearing and seeing and practicing. When you look elsewhere, when the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, hey, he's in 2 Timothy 2, and he says, hey, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says to Timothy. If you look at what the Lord Jesus Christ says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19-20, he says, Go, therefore, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's, there's lots of verbiage here in terms of what it looks like to biblically make disciples. The model that we get here is that biblical discipleship requires a number of things. Listen to this list from those passages I just read. I'm just going to do a fly-by quick. Biblical discipleship requires commands and observation and teaching and baptism, which is kind of inclusion in the church family. You're you're a Christian, right? We we think you're a Christian. This is the outward visible um, piece of that. So baptism is part of that. A going and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Suffering. Faithful hearing. Faithful listening. Practice. Visible mentoring. Learning. Those are a lot of the concepts, a lot of the pieces of what biblical discipleship looks like. And it's not just sitting in a church gathering a few times per month, although being in a church gathering, large group on Sundays or small groups and gospel communities throughout the week, man, those are critical for sure. Biblical discipleship is more complex than events. At the end of the day, the Apostle Paul, when he gives himself as the model of discipleship to the Philippians here, What he's doing, essentially, is he's commanding them to think rightly, just as they have learned and received and heard and seen in him. They're supposed to put into practice what he has modeled for them. What Paul is essentially saying um, is he's saying, come follow Christ as I follow Christ. That's echoing what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Come follow Christ as I follow Christ. So essentially, the model is Christ through an imperfect human being. Here's the thing, we all know that commands and examples fall short unless there's a rock-solid promise to bank on. Think about that. Commands and examples, they fall short unless there is a rock-solid promise to bank on. Look at the promise in verse 9. After Paul gives his command to think this way, And after giving the Philippians himself as their model to follow, Apostle Paul solidifies everything with this promise when he says this. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Listen to this again. The God of peace will be with you. What Paul does is he implies the same kind of promise to Timothy. You go back to that text about discipleship from uh, 2 Timothy 2. Paul kind of implies the same thing there. It's not as forceful in the original language, but there's an implication of it when he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. It's kind of shorthand for be strengthened by the gracious presence of Christ. Furthermore, the same kind of promise. Um, Again, it's threaded for sure much more forcefully in the original language. Um, In Jesus' words back in the Great Commission, since I referenced that earlier, to his disciples, when he tells them, go and make more disciples, what does he say at the very end? Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You see, the promise makes the model genuine and the command achievable. I want to say that one more time. The promise makes the model genuine and it also makes the command achievable. Commands and models in the Bible are always empowered by promises and not just any old promises, but oftentimes it's the promise of God's very presence. Notice, back in Philippians, again, 4.9, that promise, that promise in 4.9 is different than the one in 4.7. 4.7, the promise of peace in 4.7 is a lesser promise, and the bigger promise is the presence. So, he starts out with the lesser, argues to the major. So, starting with the major, arguing to the lesser, okay? So, let me say it this way. verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Talking about the peace of God being with you to guard your hearts and minds. Talking about peace as a commodity. That's a lesser thing. Something you can get, right? Um, But you could also lose. 4-9 shifts. He started with the lesser, he moves to the major. Now the major is, the God of peace will be with you. You see, what he's saying is that the very presence of God is promised to those who think on these things and follow Paul's godly model. And this means that the crucified, risen, and returning Christ must be at the center of our thinking and our earthly examples. By way of conclusion and just some applicational thoughts, uh, Put yourself back in the context now of the letter to the Philippians. I will say it always bugs me when someone takes a word or a text out of context. You know, you've heard me long enough, you know that. It bugs me because it's unfaithful to God's word. Proof text, some plan or thought without giving any thought to the context bothers me. I think it bothers the Lord too. Put yourself back in the context of the Philippians church. I've read this passage gazillions of times in my life as a believer, right? I've done what I tell you bugs me. I've, I've read this, verses eight through nine. I focus more on verse eight, the think on these things true, honorable, just, pure. I think on those things like, ah, it's great, and I totally missed the promise. And I don't even think about the context. So, it's a good discipline for me, and I think for you. Think about the context, knowing that I'm in the same place as you. You're no different of a sinner than I am, vice versa. Put yourself back in the context. Put yourself in Syntyche and Euodia's seats, once again, like we did last week. Because that's the context. That's what's happened. It's not like it somehow shifted to a different church now. Remember that your your pastor is locked up in jail because brothers became enemies and came after him. Remember, you, you've, you've probably waited for this letter for quite a while. Remember that you, you're you probably wondering what the marching orders are going to be that, that Paul's going to give to you. I'd be wondering in your mind, like, gosh, is it time to rise up? Is it time to rise up against the oppression of the nation around us? I mean, that yeah, that's, that's an easy connection for us in this day and age, isn't it? I think that would have crossed their minds there. I think it would have. Maybe, um, maybe even in their context, if you were in their context, you would remember this. You would remember the revolt of the priestly line of the Maccabees. These were priests. During the times in between the New Testament and the Old Testament, these were priests. They were under great oppression by another nation. And uh, they rose up, man, and they smashed. They smashed the opposition like crazy. So maybe if you're sitting in this church, if you're Euodian Syntyche, you might remember that revolt of that priestly line of the Maccabees. It was a few hundred years earlier, most likely. Maybe you're wondering, maybe it's time for that again. Maybe Paul wants you to protest his imprisonment. After all, I mean, he's imprisoned for unjust reasons. Uh, You might remember the Philippian jailer, who was one of the first members of the church, right? That guy, he's got a governmental position. He works for the government. He's working in the prison system. Maybe it would be good. Maybe Paul's going to ask you to put together a strategy for for that guy in his governmental position to influence change in the prison system so that you can get Paul out of there, right? Maybe that's what Paul's going to tell you to go do. I don't, maybe, you know, if I, again, if I'm sitting in their shoes, maybe maybe you're thinking, Man, maybe he's going to tell all of us to go work with the wealthy Asian woman because she was one of the earliest members in the church too. She's been around for a while. I think she's very influential. Um, she's very, very trustworthy, it seems like. Um, maybe go work with her to raise a bunch of funds to flood the nation with educational material about the corruption of Rome. Or the or the, the 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 prison reform that needs to take place. Maybe maybe that's what Paul's going to tell us to go do, right? And like none of these things would be bad. That's the thing. It's the crazy thing. It's, none of those would be bad if that's what he was going to tell us to do. So it's probably okay to be thinking maybe he would tell us to go do that. Maybe just building off the. Earliest members of the Philippian church, too. Maybe maybe you're in prison, Pastor, Apostle Paul. Maybe he's going to, in this letter, maybe he's going to lay out a strategy for infiltrating the local group of demonic witches that the young girl, one of the earliest members of the church, she was set free from. Like, you've heard rumors. You've heard rumors that they they possibly sacrificed babies to their gods. Um, Paul would certainly want you to give your life to crushing that evil club. Maybe maybe that's what Paul is going to say. And once again, all those things are good, but that's not what Paul says. To your surprise, what Paul actually does is he mentions none of that. He mentions none of the trappings or the clothing that oftentimes characterizes the modern American church that we're part of. And I say that gently, just saying it's not it's not what he says. Instead, what he does is he explains that he wants you to live your life as a citizen of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And the way that you're going to do this is by rejecting self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreements and division as you put on the mind of Christ and work out your salvation in Christ. And then there's this big shocker. As he's saying all that, he calls you by name in front of everybody else in the church. He tells you specifically that you... And the other person that you're in disagreement, and division with, you need to get your act together, right? Paul says, essentially saying, "Grow up, think about these things instead. You need to agree in the Lord, stand firm in the joy of the Lord." That's the context. That's the context of the command to think on these things. It's the context of the model that we are to practice. It's the context as we think about. Um, learning and hearing and receiving and seeing that promise stand on, which by the way, at the end of the day, if the center of all of Pauline theology and biblical theology is the very presence and essence of Christ crucified, risen, and returning in glory. I think that's where we should be. I think it would have been a shocking moment for the Philippian church, to say the least. I don't think it should be any less shocking for us. It was no less shocking for me as I studied this this week. If I was one of these women, my my mind, I think in my heart in that moment when he, when he called me out that way, I probably would have exploded. <laughs> Momentarily at least. My mind probably would have become at least momentarily unstable and divided, right? Like, it just would blow my mind. There would be an, an instant battlefield taking place in my mind when Paul does this. Maybe Paul's doing that to you too right now. That's what he did to me this week. When I say Paul, I should say God through Paul in His God's Word. Maybe that's what God would do to you right now. That's what happened to me. The reality is that our inability to agree in the Lord with our brothers and sisters in Christ, across the room. Our self-centeredness, our pride, our our complaining, our arguing, our disagreements, our, our own divided minds, that's what causes the house of every church family to be divided against itself. A divided church is just evidence of divided minds and divided people. This would have been absolutely terrifying to be in Yuodian and shoes. I think it would have been terrifying. I don't think it would be like, oh, I love that. I, I don't think so. I don't think any of us would love that. I don't know if any of us love maybe the feeling that we're having right now as we're thinking through this. I don't. No, I didn't when I studied it. What is the remedy? What is the remedy when you realize your sin What is the remedy when I realize that my sin, my brokenness, because while I'm called to preach to you, I recognize it might be easier for you to hear if I just say it this way. What is the remedy for realizing that my own sin and my own brokenness causes this? How do I move forward now in the battlefield of my mind if I'm in Euodia and Syntyche's shoes? And the answer, as I have said all along, is centered on Christ crucified on my behalf. I should have been on that cross. It's centered on the the picture of Christ risen in victory over Satan, sin and death. Death was coming for me. Sin had overwhelmed me and Satan had me in his clutches. But that tomb is empty because Jesus came back to life which means but there ain't no grave that can hold me down. The answer is Christ returning in glory to take me home to heaven. So I look forward to I don't look forward to a better political system here. I don't look forward to better society. I don't I want that. I don't look forward. I look forward to heaven. I know that this earth is broken. I know that this earth is not my home. I know that this nation is not my home. I'm thankful I was born here. I know it's not my home. My home is in heaven. I look forward to that. Heaven. No more sin. No more brokenness. No more tears. No more pain. No more division. No more broken politics. No more broken society. No more abortion. No more unjust prison systems. No more of any of the things that we see. doesn't mean that I get to just retract from all those things. Do not mischaracterize me. Just say, I look forward to heaven. Because of that, I'm able to live an ethical life, engaged in the things of this life, motivated and based on that kind of a saturation, a must-put-on-the-mind-of-Christ, I must work out my salvation in Christ. I must stand firm in the joy of Christ. I must think on these things, practice what I have learned and heard and received and seen and stand. The promise of the indwelling presence of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in this way, what happens is I will wind up living my life now as a citizen of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as I take my place alongside other blood-bought believers at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb and in the light of heaven. Amen? love you guys. Pray. Father, thank you for this word. Pray, Father, that you would continue to take it Use it. Transform. Lead us into the presence of your Son and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.